Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 16, and we will be considering verse 1 to verse 8. Finally, in Mark, we deal with only eight verses. Imagine with me, though, as we turn to Mark chapter 16, how Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome would have felt in the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion. Their Sabbath had been anything but restful. Jesus was dead. Grief, fear, uncertainty was crushing their souls. Betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by the rest, Jesus was dead. Jesus, who had freed Mary Magdalene from the grip of a demon, was dead. Jesus had taught with authority cast out demons, healed the sick, even raised the dead. Now he was dead. They believed he was the son of David. They believed he was the Messiah who would redeem Israel. And now he was dead. Their hopes and aspirations dashed. All they had left was his decaying corpse in a borrowed tomb. Or so they thought. Read with me Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Compelled by love and loyalty, these women came to Jesus' tomb early that Sunday morning, in order to anoint Jesus' body with spices to slow down its inevitable decay. But even as they went to the tomb, they were worried because they, they did not have the strength to roll the stone away and so they might not be able to perform that final act of devotion. They arrived at the tomb and they were surprised. The stone had been rolled back. And surprise turned to alarm, for they saw in the tomb not Jesus' body, but a young man in a white robe. And alarm turned to trembling and astonishment at his words. 
Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If you were in the place of those women, how would you react? With excitement, with joy, with a megaphone, running, shouting, Jesus is risen. Well, look at verse 8. We're told, and they fled the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Such a buzzkill. <laughs> Do you find the ending unsatisfying? Well, you're not alone. Some unknown copyist found it so disappointingly abrupt that he or she added verse 9 to verse 20 to make Mark's gospel end better. But I think we would agree, and we need to agree with Sinclair Ferguson when he writes, most New Testament experts are convinced that Mark 16, 9 to 20 did not belong to the original text of the gospel. Why? For one thing, these verses are not written in the same style as the rest of the gospel. For another, they read more like a summary of early church tradition than the material we have in the other gospels. Their contents do not quite fit with the testimony of the gospel or the gospels. Why then does Mark's gospel end on such a different note from the other gospels? The true answer is likely to be quite simply that Mark intended to finish his gospel just as he did. Now certainly, I think Mark's ending is especially appropriate for us today. Because life and its harsh realities leave us afraid, just like those women. We live in an increasingly frightening world. We hear of school shootings, subway stabbings. That's on top of war and terrorism and global warming. We look around us, the economy is unreliable. Our values and beliefs are increasingly out of step with people around us. It's easy to be afraid. And as we look at ourselves, we realize that we fail in our responsibilities and relationships more times than we can admit. Every day, in fact, every hour, we realize that life is more than we can handle. And all too often, Jesus seems absent from our lives. We're in the dark. It is easy to lose hope. So we can relate to how these women felt. It's a Good Friday kind of feeling. And as I look back, I remember that feeling at the graveside of my six-year-old cousin years ago. She had been born with four holes in her heart, and she had had surgery to correct the problem. She had successful surgery. I visited her in the hospital, and I saw her. She was saying, I'm, I'm coming out tomorrow. I'm going to have McDonald's. But the following day, I, went, I got home, and my sisters greeted me with, Catherine's dead. Uh, say what? 
There were complications, and she died the very day she was supposed to be released from the hospital. I was already a believer then, but I felt hopeless and helpless. For those women, the future was in shambles. They believed in resurrection, but they believed that the resurrection would have happened at the last day when, when the day of the Lord took place. For it to happen before was inconceivable. And so their fear and their disappointment made the news of Jesus' resurrection just too hard to believe. And Mark's first readers would have resonated with these women because they themselves would have been afraid and bewildered because they were going through persecution at the hands of the Roman government. The way of the servant king is often through the dark. And the fog of Good Friday despair can obscure the rays of Easter hope. So that many of us with the father of that demon-possessed child in Mark chapter 9 cry out, God, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Faith isn't a very easy thing as we live in the already and not yet. But thankfully, Easter hope is grounded not in our feelings, but in reality. You see, fear cannot, does not change the fact that Jesus really rose again. These women might have been incapable of believing that Jesus rose again because they were suffering from a Good Friday hangover. Not of drunkenness, but of disappointment. But their unbelief does not invalidate the angel's message. Notice, he invited them to see for themselves that the body of Jesus was not there because Jesus had been raised to life. In verse 6, Yes, the way of the servant king brings us through darkness, but the way of the servant king is not based on a wish. It is founded on what really happened. Christianity makes the outrageous claim that God became man, lived a completely human life that perfectly satisfied God's righteous standards and unjustly died on a Roman cross. And ludicrous as it sounds, that same God-man rose again three days later and is coming again riding on a white horse. Amen. Truth is stranger than fiction. And because Jesus rose again, for real, we have genuine reason for hope in this Good Friday world. In the first place, Jesus' resurrection validates his claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Over and over, this claim comes across in the Gospel of Mark. And so the Jews crucified him for blasphemy, for claiming to be equal with God because he forgave sins. How dare he? And declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. The Romans crucified him for treason, for claiming to be king. But God raised him again to show that the sentence of the Jews and the Romans was unjust. Jesus was simply telling the truth. And so we recognize that the resurrection was God's way of vindicating Jesus. 
of declaring him innocent of all charges, indeed righteous before God's eyes. And it issues then a challenge to you and me. Especially to those who do not put their faith in Jesus. You can object all you want. But the resurrection conclusively demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when he returns, whether you like it or not, you will join us in confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if you wait till then, your confession will also be your condemnation. So we urge you, in light of the resurrection of Jesus that demonstrates that he is God and King, the only Savior, will you not bow the knee to Christ and be reconciled to God? It is in him alone that we find reconciliation because the resurrection is Jesus' justification. And through faith in him, we share in that verdict. It is no accident that Jesus was crucified for blasphemy and treason because these are the two crimes that our first parents committed when they disobeyed God in the garden. They blasphemed God because they doubted his word. They committed treason because they sought to be as God. And at the heart, all our sins are rooted in blasphemy and treason. And so Jesus died the death we deserve to satisfy the demands of God's justice, to appease God's righteous wrath. And through faith in Jesus, we are united to him so that when God declared Jesus righteous, we share in that verdict. That's why, as Thomas read in Romans 4, Paul would say, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. And we also recognize that Jesus' resurrection demonstrates God's commitment to save. So that in the here and now, in the midst of our doubt and our uncertainty, our fear, we can entrust ourselves to him. The way Mark ends means that the last words of Jesus that Mark records are the words that Jesus spoke on the cross. As David Garland would say, in Mark, one sees most vividly the power of God working in the crucifixion. And those final words that Mark records are when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the echo of the lament of the righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. And within that lament, Jesus is expressing his confidence in God despite the darkness and pain of his distress. And the resurrection says that God answered his prayer. As Alistair McGrath would point out, the cross viewed in light of the resurrection became transformed from a story of pointless carnage and hopelessness to the passionate and powerful proclamation of the God who stooped down from heaven himself in order to bring humanity back to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the God who tells us to put our confidence in him. The God who heard the prayer of the Son 
who heard the prayer of him who bore our shame so that we might be adopted as sons. And we already see that restored relationship demonstrated and prefigured in the tearing of the temple veil at Jesus' death. It is to say that he has given us free access to God. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus then has made all things new. The kingdom has come in power, though we do not yet see its consummation. We live in the already and the not yet. But that simply means that our future is secure in him. We need not fear anything. We know how things turn out. Because our God is not just willing to save. He is able to save. He already exerted his infinite power to raise Jesus from the dead. And the amazing thing is that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and in me right now. Transforming us to look like Jesus. The resurrection tells us that our God has bound himself to us in covenant commitment. He will save. And so we might be scorned for believing in Jesus. We might suffer for believing Jesus, for following Jesus. But we can and must be faithful to him. Because just as God vindicated Jesus by his resurrection, so Jesus will vindicate us when he returns. The resurrection of Jesus declares beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have a hope that we can count on. It is genuine. Our hope is founded on the solid foundation of God's proven character. And that's why the messenger ends, there you will see him just as he told you. Jesus was true to his word. Even death could not prevent him from keeping his word. But let's admit, we know all this. I'm not telling you anything new. But like the women and the apostles, we are weak. We struggle with doubt. The sad part is, we'd rather not let people know. Elsa's song from Frozen becomes our own mantra. It's very familiar. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. We don't realize that people see through our facade anyway. And we hurt ourselves because we are unwilling to admit that we need help. So we keep it in. And worse, our keeping it in prevents others who are hurting like us, who are struggling like us, from seeking help just like us. And that's why Mark's ending is so appropriate and refreshing. You see, just like the women and disciples, you and I are failures. And Daryl reminded us of that on Good Friday. But here's the wonderful thing. Easter hope relies on the grace of God. It's not about our performance. It's not about our strength. 
Realize that Jesus gave his life for disciples who abandoned him. And that's the whole point of Jesus dying and rose again. We are broken people in desperate need of a Savior we do not deserve. And that's why the angel told the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Those words were a comfort to the disciples in the midst of their shame and disgrace. Because the angel was reassuring the disciples, Jesus still loved them. Yes, Jesus knows you abandoned him. But he's not finished with you. He sends them to Galilee. Because as David Garland points out, in the Gospel of Mark, Galilee has been the place of calling, faith, compassion, healing, power, and authority. By going back to Galilee where Jesus will be, the disciples go back to the promising birth of their call to discipleship. There they can regroup and begin again the journey of discipleship. In Galilee, the disciples will physically see Jesus, but seeing also has to do with spiritual perception, something that has eluded the disciples more often than not in the narrative. They will also see him in the sense of gaining true insight into his identity. Jesus will heal them of their blindness so that they will understand fully who he is, what his life and death mean, and how they must follow him. The disciples' shabby performance during the last week of Jesus' life has exposed them as sinners. Now Jesus will regather them as a new people who take up their cross, following after him, and proclaiming God's triumph over Satan, sin, and death. Their eyes and ears will be open. They will know more about where the road leads. See, this is the way of the servant king, where sin abounded, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Mark's ending tells us that our failures cannot derail the purposes of God. The kingdom will advance despite our weakness. Because the grace of God is greater than our fear and our disobedience. The women's fearful disobedience and the disciples' cowardice could not keep the gospel from spreading. The mere fact that the book of Mark was written to Roman Christians 30 years after Jesus died and rose again demonstrates that God's purposes prevailed over their weakness. You see, that's why Jesus rose again. Our failures are overcome by the resurrection of Jesus. He died and rose again in order to make us into new creation. That's what it means when he comes to make all things new. He comes to make us new, to give us new hearts on which the law of God is written, in which the Spirit dwells. And that's why the phrase, and Peter, is so wonderful. Peter was probably Mark's primary source for his material. And you can imagine Peter as he is telling Mark the story of the resurrection of Jesus. You can imagine his tears of gratitude 
as he repeated to Mark those words indelibly graved on, engraved on his heart, and Peter. You see, Peter had boasted that he would be stronger than everyone else. In chapter 14, he says, even though they all should fail, they fall away, I will not, Jesus. You can count on me. And yet he denied Jesus three times. The good news is that Jesus was not finished with Peter. Jesus restored him and used him mightily as he transformed him. And here's what's even more astounding. You and I are just like Peter in our arrogant self-importance, our bumbling boasting, and our spectacular failures. Our good intentions are way too weak to overcome our bad habits. But just as Jesus refused to cast Peter aside for his failure, neither will he give up on you and me. That's why he redeemed us in the first place, isn't it? And please understand, we are not diamonds in the rough needing only to be polished. That says too much about us. We're actually lumps of coal fit only for the furnace. And even then, we pollute the environment when we're used. <laughs> but here's the grace of God. We are lumps of coal, but he will turn us into diamonds fit for the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why the gospel is so precious. It frees us to admit the truth about ourselves. We can admit our failures and our weaknesses because Jesus loves us anyway. He chose to love us knowing how bad we are, better than we know ourselves. And in his love, he's not going to leave us the way we are. He is determined to make something amazing out of broken misfits like you and me. But knowing the wonder of Jesus' love raises the challenge implicit in Mark's ending. In the same way that Mark told the story of the cross, to draw us in and challenge us to respond, Mark left his gospel open-ended to draw us into the same story and implicitly asks us, how will you respond? Will you let fear silence you? Or will you go and tell the good news of our risen Savior? See, that was the question that was facing Mark's first readers as they faced persecution in Rome. And that's the choice we face today, too. And again, it's not about our strength or ability. Neither the women nor the disciples had the courage or strength to stand on their own. In fact, as I reflect on the Gospel of Mark, I realize that Mark himself knew the shame of giving up and being rejected by Paul. He actually caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. But by the grace of God, he recovered through the efforts of Barnabas, and so much so that even Paul said that Mark has become useful to me. And so Mark's ending ultimately points us to Paul's secret for success. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, But he said to me, this is Jesus saying to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of the servant king. It is the way of weakness that knows the power of God. We are a bunch of failures living in a Good Friday world. But we have Easter hope from God who is far greater than our weakness. And his infinite power is even now at work to transform us. So let us, as we know how weak and frail and flawed we are, let us rest in him so that we may hold out to everyone the Easter hope that our risen Lord has secured forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that the faith that you have given us is a faith that is real and realistic. A faith that does not deny the harsh realities of life. But at the same time, a faith that because it is given to you by you to us and that is sustained by you, it is a faith that can endure in the midst of pain, turmoil, and suffering. Indeed, Father, we, we recognize that as your people, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And those footsteps led him to the cross. And so we know that we will suffer. We know that we will encounter hardship. That's why you call us to take up our cross, deny ourselves daily, so that we may follow Jesus. And we thank you that in following Jesus, we have the confidence of knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that he has gone ahead of us so that he may prepare a place for us. And he will come again and receive us to himself. Father, thank you for that confidence that we have. That this same God who humbled himself to become a fully human being and humbled himself further to suffer the death, the most shameful death on the cross, is also now the risen and exalted Lord. And that one day, one day, he will return and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh Lord, may that hope give us strength, give us courage. May that hope cause us to delight in you so that like the apostles, we could not but speak the things that we have seen and heard that from our mouth and our lives would pour forth the glorious news that Christ is risen 
and he is coming again. May this hope strengthen us to serve your purposes. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.